Welcome, everybody, to the Living Your Career Show. I'm your host, Roisin Duffy. COVID-19 has changed forever the way we work. New rules are in play. So rather than fear uncertainty and adversity, how about we embrace this opportunity for our advantage? Sharing the secrets of how to win with these new rules of work is our special guest and co-author, Dr. Christian Bush. Welcome to the show, Christian. Thank you so much for having me. Pleasure. And we're a little bit late, folks, though, but there's plenty going to be in the show for you. So do tune in and, and, uh, and listen on. So Christian's professional scientific research has shown that serendipity is not a random chance. And we have the power to create, to coach, and I guess to cultivate our own smart luck. And today we're going to find out how. So, uh, Christian, do you want to be called Dr. Bush or would you prefer to be called Christian? Oh, Christian's perfect. Good on you. So Christian is the director of the Global Economy Program at New York's University Center for Global Affairs. He's the inaugural deputy director of the London School of Economics Innovation Center, the co-founder of Leaders on Purpose, an organization convening high-impact leaders, and his other brainchild is the Sandbox Network, a global community of young innovators active in over 20 countries. And for the purpose of today's show, Christian, we're going to be talking about the serendipity mindset, which I have been reading very diligently this week, I might tell you. So thank you for coming on the show and for making the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. I appreciate it. I guess the first question is, Christian, we all have, um, you know, stories of chance encounters that have changed our lives. And your book recounts, one of the reasons why I really enjoyed reading your book is because it very much was about... um, real-life experiences, and you were able to recount all sorts of individual as well as corporate stories, stories about, um, you know, uh, CEOs and big leaders as well as, you know, your everyday person. And I guess one of the things that I suppose I thought was very important was how do people actually develop the right mindset? And I think in your book you said prepared mind to create and nurture, you know, conditions for positive coincidences to happen. Absolutely, and and thank you so much for you know indulging yourself in 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 the book. That's that's wonderful. I enjoyed it. Um, thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. And yeah, it's it's really something you know. It's been a life philosophy and a daily practice for the last kind of decade, um, at least for me. And and it's been fascinating because you know I when you look at world the world when you look at people how. Um, you know, the most successful, inspirational, purpose-driven people, how they operate. A lot of times when you step back and, you know, get away from these kind of official narratives, you realize, oh, wow, a lot of times, actually, it's a very similar pattern. And that's exactly the pattern that you just mentioned, that in a way, they see something in the unexpected. They see something in the moment, and then they connect the dots and and, and do something with it. And so, um, you know, if you think about the quintessential moments, you know, if you have erratic hand movements like I do, you know, you, you spill coffee over someone in the coffee shop. And so imagine that moment and imagine you, you sense some kind of connection with that person. You don't know what it is, but you just sense there might be something there. And now, you know, you have two options, right? Option number one is you just say, oh, I'm so sorry. You know, perhaps you give a napkin and then you walk outside and you think what could have happened had I spoken with the person. And then option number two is, you know, you say, I'm so sorry, I was in my head. You start a conversation and that person turns out to become your co-founder, your life partner, or or else. And so I guess we've all had these situations in our life where the way of how we acted upon the unexpected in a way shaped 
our outcomes. And so the, that is really what a lot of my work is about to say, what is it about? How can we build a muscle for those situations when they happen so that we can make those accidents more meaningful, but also how can we create more meaningful accidents? So how can we use different exercises to also create those positive unexpected moments? It's interesting because obviously I've done a lot of research on you over the last couple of weeks. And some of the things, you know, it links into all sorts of things. You were talking about, you know, how we, the world has changed. COVID-19 has made the way we work so different now with remote working, more social isolation, definitely a lot more digital, definitely a lot more technology in play. And you were saying, you know, how we job seek, how we connect and how we network. You were saying those are some of the things that are really going to be irretrievably changed forever. I'm interested, when you're talking about the serendipity muscle, what sort of tools and tips would you perhaps say to somebody who's job seeking or wanting to advance their career right now? What might be different in terms of how they might approach the job markets? You know, I think one trend that we've seen over the last kind of years anyways was that you know, this idea that jobs are written out and then you apply and then you go through this whole process and so on. Yes, some jobs are that, but a lot of jobs obviously emerge unexpectedly when XYZ person says, oh my God, I need someone for this position. Does anyone know someone, right? And then you plug someone in and in more kind of, you know, structured organizations, you still write out a job description, but essentially the job is already given to to a person. And so the, the point is that one thing I've seen Uh, with my students, for example, when COVID happened was to say, hey, a lot of them had their careers mapped out, you know, they had their internship lined up in a bank, or they had their, you know, next career move all planned. And then COVID happened, and all of that was just, you know, gone. And, And so they were in this situation where, in a way, all their planning somehow didn't didn't work. And so, of course, that kind of was a very tough moment. Um, and then what we said okay, was, okay, hey, look, how can we now in this situation actually reframe the situation away from, you know, this took everything away from you to how is this an opportunity? How is this an opportunity for you to actually take a step back and say, why did I want this in the first place? And maybe are there other ways that I could also, you know, have some kind of imprint on the world? Like, is there some kind of, you know, what, what are the things that I can really do in the world? And so what we, what we try to do then is to say, how can we frame those interest areas that are not necessarily related to a particular industry, but they're related to a particular, you know, um, sense of direction, purpose, um, a particular kind of uh, passion, whatever that, that might be. And then really kind of casting a very wide net and starting conversations, starting conversations with adjunct professors, with um, with 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 people on LinkedIn, you know, these second degree connections where you can write an email and you can reach out to essentially 10,000 people if you have only a few uh, contacts on LinkedIn because you can reach out to their contacts and really kind of getting into that modus of just in, in a way putting a lot of bets out there and then seeing what, what could work. And, and for them, essentially, a lot of what happened was that, you know, unexpectedly XYZ person says, oh, my God, like, you know, I was just coincidentally looking into exactly the area that you seem to be specialized in. You should come in first as, you know, an assistant to me or whatever, and then we'll, we'll make you a project manager and then you, you go into your, your area. And so long story short, I think one of the things that, that I found fascinating um, about those kind of questions is that I think by, in a way, COVID being this collective near-death experience that we've all had, which was like this moment of, wow, like life can be over very quickly. Mm. A lot of things we took for granted can just be gone. A lot of assumptions that we had might not be, you know, valid anymore. 
that also is an opportunity to say, you know what, what is it actually that's important to me? What is it actually that I want to anchor myself in? And then who are the people I should connect with, even if it is not leading to an immediate effect, right? So a lot of the kind of conversations that those students have, for example, they take three months, four months, five months, and then at some point something happens. Um, but it's really that kind of moment of re-anchoring and, and, and doing something about it. And so a, a lot of the exercises that I'm very interested in is really to say, how do we use every interaction, every conversation to somehow see the couple of dots that other people could connect for us and then kind of lead us to the next job, the next client and so on. And so I'm a big fan, for example, of the hook strategy. So the hook strategy mm -hmm. is all about this idea that, you know, if, 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 you know, this dreaded question, what do you do, right? So if you ask that question to, uh, to someone at a conference, you usually try to put them into a box, right? And try to identify where they are. Um, but so there's this amazing entrepreneur in London, Ollie Barrett. And if you would ask him, so what do you do? He would say something along the lines of, well, I'm a technology entrepreneur, but recently started reading into the philosophy of science. But what I'm really excited about is playing the piano. And so what he's doing here is he's casting three hooks. He's putting three dots out there where you could be like, oh, my God, such a coincidence. I recently started hosting Piano Martinez. You should stop by. Oh, my God, such a coincidence. My sister is a philosophy of science professor, you should give a guest lecture. The point is, especially when we're job seeking, we can cast these hooks in every conversation with the uncle, with the aunt, with the sister, with the brother, where we could just see it a little bit. Oh, by the way, I've been reading into this and this, just in case you come by, you know, doesn't really matter, but just let me know. And a lot of times then opportunities come from the most unexpected of places. It's, I think one of the things I found interesting in your book is you were talking about self-censoring. And you're saying that we need to have an open mind, that we need to be receptive because so many times, and this comes back to the prepared mind versus the unprepared mind, that ability to sort of understand our own bias, understand perhaps, um, you know, when we're fearful of doing things and removing some of that fear and being more adventurous and inquisitive and curious. I guess I was wondering from your perspective, you know, how do people really self-center effectively? Because I know a lot of people, if you said to them, what makes you tick? They wouldn't really know. They do what they do every day for a living, and that's about the size of it. I'm curious to understand what self-censoring looks like in your world and what lessons might there be for others in that. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting because in a way, it's almost the self, like the centering and the self-censoring are, are a lot of times very very closely related. And so, so I'm, I'm very curious about both. So in a way, the question of how do I, you know, ground myself, center myself in certain principles, ideas, values, something that allows me to connect the dots more efficiently or effectively when, you know, serendipity is all about seeing and connecting dots. And so the more I can get into that mindset, the more I can do something with it. Um, and so on the side of essentially trying to find an anchor, I'm a big fan of doing a uh, serendipity journal where essentially you you know, write down what are the key areas of interest at the moment, what is some kind of sense of direction, which makes it much easier than to, in every conversation, connect the dots because you know what to connect them to. And so, um, you know, just writing down what are some areas I'm interested in and so on and that I want to seed a little bit um, can already be very helpful, I think, to, to just ground a little bit, um, maybe identifying some principles or values. Um, I've, I've gone through very painful periods where, um, you know, I had to figure out what are the non-negotiable values. So those that, you know, a lot of values, you know, once you have a, a trade-off of values, um, you might let go one value and, and value the other over over those. But then there's these non-negotiables, I guess, where you're saying, no, 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 I will never give that up, integrity or loyalty or, or whatever it is. 
Uh, but also then the kind of key interest area. But then I think the self-censoring is interesting because even if we are centered in ourselves, if we if we know what we want, a lot of times we might hold back, right? Because we, um, I mean, I, you know, I consistently have this inner imposter, for example, right? Where essentially I, you know, consistently have that question, okay, are you ready? Can you really do this and X, Y, Z? And I think that in a way, even if we see something in the unexpected, even if we see a potential opportunity, we might hold ourselves back because we might not feel ready or worthy or whatever it is. And so I think it's it's one of the pleasures of, uh, you know, having um, or being able to dive deeper into those topics is really to be able to also work on these deeper psychological questions of saying, okay, what is actually holding me back in that coffee shop situation? If I did not act on the moment, even though I felt there could be something, why was that the case? Is it fear of rejection? Is it something else? And how can I work around those kind of questions? Yeah, it's it, again, it's interesting because you say many of us over-focus on our ambition and we under-focus on aspiration. And this comes back to what motivates you. You know, that you said that sort of center, that anchor that you have, and whether or not you are purpose-driven, whether you are principle-driven or there, there's some other motivation there. And I'm just wondering, you know, uh, I'd be interested in your thoughts on ambition versus aspiration, really, because in a serendipitous world, you know, th- I, I kind of thought to myself, some people would be much better suited to spotting opportunities and connecting those dots than others. And I was wondering, is ambition enough or do you need aspiration to really optimize your luck? Yeah, well, it's a great question because if you think about the two, I mean, to me, ambition is, is is quite often driven by external factors. So it's driven by peer pressure, by the idea of, you know, I have to do X, Y, Z to succeed in my job. And, and so there's this kind of notion of, it's almost like a, it's not necessarily a fight or flight per se, but it's, it's, it's putting us into this kind of constant comparative mode where in a way it's never enough, right? Because we're consistently competing and, and so on. Versus aspiration is the more kind of inspirational we're looking towards something and, and, and want to do that. And, you know, I, we just, so we did a, a large um, kind of research study with um, 43 CEOs um, who, you know, run big companies like MasterCard, Procter & Gamble and others. And we sat down with them and said, what is it that really makes you successful? What is it that really, if you really have to drill it down, like what is it that really enables you to run a company where it's a good company at this point, but you want to push it towards having more purpose, more societal impact, and so on. And one of the key things that that a lot of them have in common is that they say, you know what, we have a certain sense of direction, but also we have a certain idea that the unexpected will shape a lot of that, and that's okay. So we allow for a little bit of that, quote-unquote, imperfection to happen. And, And to me, that's always been interesting because, you know, I grew up in Germany where you get trained in this mindset of, you have to plan everything out and you have to know it all and you you know authority comes from knowing everything and then you get out in real life and you you think oh my god a lot of people are just winging it right and, and you just got to make the best out of out of a lot of situations and so what i found fascinating when you really observe those extremely inspirational leaders is that a lot of times they're really good at saying this is our aspiration this is where we want to go um and you know of course we want to kind of you know figure out a certain strategy to get there. But we already tell you now that the strategy might change over time. And I think what it does is it it relieves the pressure of having to be perfect at any point in time because you're essentially saying it's not an imperfection if you 
get new data or new information, it's actually part of our plan. And so I think that to me took a long time to realize, wow, this whole ambition thing of like having, you know, this career track and then this career track and this and this versus saying, no, no, let's look at the bigger picture here. And then essentially say, you know what, we have an approximate plan here, but part of it might emerge. That's how real life um, actually then probably anyways plays out. So it, it might also be just a more relaxed way of, of living life. I thought it was funny in your book when you said that um, after when you talk to these leaders, and these are some of the most successful leaders in the world that you're talking to in your leaders um, on purpose um, forums. But you said, you know, the narrative is quite aspirational, as you said, and open, broad, sort of open and broad when they sort of talk about it. But it, because they can't say to people, well, this is what we're planning on doing, or this is the big idea. But in reality, um, you know, there's got to be a bit of luck along the way that's needed here. And we couldn't, you know, but the narrative changes after the event when it's been delivered or it's been delivered in a different way. Perhaps you can give us an example of that. Yeah, well, absolutely. And I think, I mean, if you look at, if you're a high powered leader, the one goal you have is that you want to portray control at any time, right? So you want to, you want to be in the boardroom and you want to say, I know exactly how this everything works and, and all of you can trust me because I know, you know, I know everything. Um, and that's the old school leadership style, right? And that like everyone in this boardroom knows that this person can't know everything, but they're like, you know what? He portrays that well. So we'll, we'll trust him for now. Now, what I found really interesting, um, and, and I, I found that intriguing when looking, for example, at, you know, different countries or even different states within countries, how they opened up during COVID or how they had their different uh, types of COVID reactions. Um, if you look in the U.S., for example, um, where I'm at uh, at the moment, you know, some governors of some of the states, um, they had this whole thing of, OK, we will open up exactly on May 15th, and then exactly on May 20th, we will do this and this and this. And so they would give us this exact timeline. And then, you know, you had kind of the new type mentality um, leadership where they would say, you know what, we have key principles, which is public health, economic health. We have an approximate timeline here, but we are already telling you now that if we receive new information about new COVID clusters, whatever it is, we will revise the timeline. And that is part of our plan. And by making it part of the plan that you actually know that your timeline most probably will not be accurate, you actually build that trust and that authority of saying, you know what, I can cope with this unpredictable world. And to your question, right, I think a lot of the, the work that we've been doing is essentially how a lot of executives tend to post-rationalize. So they tend to say, I always planned this and this was exactly how I mapped it out and blah, blah, blah. And it seems very linear, but actually it was more like a squiggle, right? Where essentially like, you know, X, Y, Z happened and then they reacted to it and they made it always seem to be under control. And the long story short here really is that I think it puts a lot of pressure on people, that idea that people always have to have it all figured out and everything else. But in reality, the most powerful, interesting people in the world, a lot of times are winging it even if they like portray control as part of their job. And so I've just been intrigued by this question of how do we essentially legitimize a way of life that takes away this idea that you have to pretend all the time, that you have to pretend you know everything, because that in a way anyways doesn't build the real trust. The real trust is built when you can say, hey, look, I appreciate the situation. We don't have all the answers, but I have an approximate plan and we are doing the best out of this. And, and that's really kind of um, what we've seen with those leaders that you mentioned, that in a way, the really good ones, what they're doing is, is really that kind of idea of 
hey, here's a North Star, here's a sense of direction, but we're open to the unexpected and we're okay with this. And what the serendipity mindset tries to do is to say, to give that an active language, to say, it's not about a passive thing that just happens to you. You're actively cultivating serendipity here. And I think we can apply that as well. We were taught, I was sort of applying it to, to careers because I said they're not um, linear, they're not controllable, you're not perfect, jobs aren't perfect, companies aren't perfect. And I think, you know, you said as well, you know, life is filled with uh, uh, lots of events and fortuitous twists and turns. And the reality is, and I guess this comes back to the growth mindset versus the fixed mindset. You know, if your mindset is fixed, you're going to plant your feet You're going to deal with plans. You're going to prioritize the smallest detail. And I noticed in your book, in a way, you were kind of quite pleased to say, you know, throw priorities out the window. Let life happen. Let events happen. Let encounters happen. Capitalize on the now rather than planning in a way for what may never happen down the track. Could you flesh that one out a bit for me? Because I think you said it's about inspiration and aspiration along the way, not just instantaneous moments. It's a journey. Yeah, and, and I think one of the key philosophical ideas behind that is really to say, look, life could be over any minute. You could run in front of a car. Um, you know, I had COVID last year. I almost died of it. Like, those moments happen. And and if we have this idea that, you know, let's make a lot of money now, and then when we're 60, we can give it all back and be really meaningful, that might be too late. We might not have that time. And so it's really about that that idea to say, hey, look, Yes, it's great to have priorities and it's it's great to, you know, know what we think we want. And then I think it's it's great to step back and say, well, how much of this is really, if you would be on your deathbed today, like, would you really, what would you regret that you hadn't done? Like, is, is there anything that, you know, you feel you have this assumption you will do it at some point, but maybe you haven't? And and I, I find that always intriguing. You know, I work a lot with people who are in, in senior positions who are close to retirement, for example. And retirement almost is a small kind of, you know, you see the end coming, right? And so when you see the end coming, you think about your legacy. You think about things where you're like, wow, it's over soon, so I have to do the things now that I really care about. And I think that's the same with, you know, people like me. I had a couple of uh, near-death experiences in my life. I've talked a lot with people who face cancer and, and other diseases. And the interesting thing is when you face those kind of questions of you can see the end, you 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 reframe your priorities because you're saying you let go of the assumption that you have all the time in the world and you build in a certain urgency. And that urgency is not about fight or flight. It's not about, oh, my God, like life is depressing now. It's the opposite. It's imbuing meaning in actually saying, what can I do now at this point which actually allows me to live that meaningful life that then allows me to shape exquisite things around me. And I think, you know, um, a lot of my work is in extremely resource-constrained environments. So, you know, Sub-Saharan Africa in particular. And, you know, a lot of times the conversations around questions such as, oh, uh, can only people who are more privileged live a life that is really meaningful? And, you know, I can tell you, like, the most inspiring aspirational organizations in extremely resource-constrained environments, they are the ones that actually have extremely meaningful approaches in terms of, you know, making the best out of what is what is at hand locally, um, creating own luck in small ways locally. And so, you know, this whole idea that we have to walk up a hierarchy of needs and first do our kind of career and everything else and then what we find find meaningful um, is, is just extremely outdated. And and I think a lot of times it's, it serves as an excuse to to just postpone things. 
Yeah, I think you had you coined a really lovely phrase and you said it's our circle of needs, not you know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And I sort of reflected on that a lot and I thought, you know what, that's bang on. And um, one of the things, and again, it comes back to the new um and I guess that comes back to resourcefulness and creativity and collaboration and cooperation, all of those important things when you're trying to galvanize energy and create something um, from what you have. I was interested, though, talking about the new way that we work now and, uh, you know, expanding networks in a virtual world. And, you know, yes, it's easy to have. I know you and, you know, there's lots of things that you encourage around, you know, get out there, interact with people, be curious, be inquisitive. and that's one aspect, and I'll come to that in a minute. But the more important part is social media will allow you, Christian, to have lots of connections. But how do you build and deepen relationships? And, you know, you use this word serendipity bombs, which I love. But how do you use serendipity bombs to actually build and deepen relationships? Because cursory relationships won't get you anywhere when you're trying to cultivate your luck and serendipity. Yeah, I love that question because I think, one of the big problems in the world is that people have a lot of connections, but they're very lonely. And 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 the reason I say this is because I think there's a lot of kind of transactional relationships. There's a lot of relationships that are based on, great, this person is in a similar industry as I am, or this person kind of works on similar things. But do I really care? Do I really care about this person? Is there really something there that makes me feel less lonely because I feel I'm in it with that person in 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 this life in, in some way. And, and you know, when you mentioned serendipity bombs, serendipity bombs is with kind of people who are far away, right? So, um, you know, let's say you write a book and you need a couple of endorsements from interesting people. That's really about saying, identify all the really interesting people around the world who could somehow be interested in giving an endorsement and then, you know, reach out to them via LinkedIn mail or something, uh, by a second degree or third degree, and, and just kind of like in a way you know, write everyone how inspired you are about what they're doing and, and how you essentially um, would love kind of, you know, some some kind of uh, some sort of endorsement. And it's really kind of a numbers game in the sense of saying, hey, look, like this is this is this is about quantity in some way. But actually, when you think about what makes us less lonely, it's about quality. right? It's about meaningful relationships. It's about the question of how do you build those kind of long term relationships that make us feel that there's more to life than just, you know, Kind of transactional things, and um, I've always been inspired by this. Um, those of you interested in this, it might be interesting to Google. I think it was in the Guardian. Um, it's deathbed regrets, and so nurses essentially, when they stand, you know, next to patients on the deathbed and they ask them about regrets, one of the key regrets. I mean, no regret ever has been about I had only four cars in my garage and not five, like never. Mm. Um, the key regrets are usually about I wished I had more meaningful relationships in my life where I really kind of lived up to who I would want to have, like I would want it to be X, Y, Z versus who I thought I should be and X, Y, Z and so on. And so I think it's it's this um, like bigger question around how do you identify those people who might have truly aligns I think the word has been overused, but values in the sense of like a common denominator that is not industry, that is not topic, that is not interest, but that's really about what do you believe life is about? What do you, what are you creating in, in life and so on? And then connecting with those people. And I found it fascinating. You know, I, I have much more in common with the person I connected that way with, with whom I had two conversations for two hours and we went so deep than 
I don't know, my kind of old school friends who I have had hundreds of conversations with, but we don't have a lot in common. And so I think it's, it's this kind of um, question of, of identifying those, like, in a way, communities of interest that are about not the interest itself, but really kind of what do we feel in a way our purpose in life is or our our manifestation of what we want to do in the world. And I think a lot of times we can't know this exactly. And so it's, it's kind of like, in a way, that's why these serendipity bombs are interesting because we're seeing a little bit and feeling ourselves around, okay, who's the kind of person I would find more interesting to be, you know, quote unquote, uh, more related to than others. Yeah, it's, um, I have to say that sort of whole sense of who you connect with and how you connect with. And that I think that's what you said about ambition is about what we want to do and aspiration is about who we want to be. And I think that again ties into your passion, your purpose in life. And one of the things I thought was curious about, you know, you said about we need to be more investigative. We need to be more curious. We need to really put ourselves out there, change it up, because the realities are some people, I think you said, you know, sometimes when you see an idea coming together and two people's minds going, boom, the spark hits, it's a glorious thing to see. I guess I was wondering, though, to connect with all people, you know, and to get out when you have limited time, busy lives, I'm just wondering the role, what does time play, the role of time and serendipity to be able to do some deep sea diving and still kind of, not, as you said, not forget the school friends that you went out with. You know, you can still have thousands of conversations with them, but I think it's quantity and quality. I'm curious about the time element of serendipity. Yeah. Well, I mean, my first thought on this is that I feel a lot of people are busy, but not productive. Like a lot of people are you know, they're constantly doing stuff, but if they would look back after six years and say, what did I actually do? Like, it would be a lot of kind of, you know, stuff, which maybe if you step back and like, I don't know, do a journal or so and really write down, like, what are the kind of priorities? What are the things that I can really shape um, that, that really kind of, in a way, allow to not only be busy, but actually, you know, be productive. And I think a lot of times we are not able, you know, we are not in control always of our schedule, right? We have a lot of probably... I don't know, a lot of unproductive meetings get pushed on us. Like there's a lot of different things that I think we cannot control. And then there's always this kind of aspect that we can control. And I think that's the aspect that I'm really curious about. Like what is that kind of part, you know, what is that time that we can really control and how do we use that in a way that feels really meaningful to us? And 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 I think that really takes like a little bit of self-reflection in terms of saying, you know, if if I assume that all these conversations I have every day, I really need to have, all these conversations and all this kind of um, um, chatter, or is there like a way that I can really kind of filter that a little bit, say like, okay, based on what feels meaningful to me, I should focus a little bit more on X, Y, Z, and I should do that now because again, life might be over um, sooner than we think. Um, you know, there's uh, just a lot of interesting, um, you know, uh, how to say, life shortcutting things out there that, that might just make that happen. And then actually it, it, it might happen anytime. And so I think it's it's really kind of in a way identifying what is it that is really worth spending time on and how can I make that time for it? And, and I think that's something even the busiest people, right? Like I'm surrounded by a lot of extremely busy people, right? I have traders around me who work literally 20 hours a day and, and, and would say I have absolutely no time. And then we still find a way to say, look, like there's still like, 
20 minutes where if you're really excited and if your real purpose is to learn from monks how you can have a deeper purpose, then by any means, let's do this 20-minute conversation with a monk every week, whatever it is. Like, it's really this kind of idea that there's always there's always time if we prioritize it. And I think that's something that I've found fascinating with the most high power of people. I mean, to your point, like, I think I've been fortunate over the last years to interact with interesting people. And I can tell you that, like, the, 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 the most high power people, there's always time if there's a priority to the time. And, and I think that's the interesting thing that I think you, you will always find that. Um, and so I'm, I've, I've been a big fan of this idea of a maker schedule to really schedule time with oneself and say, this is my priority time. And in this priority time, I will do what feels meaningful to me. Nobody gets a meeting in this time. And if it's six o'clock in the morning, it's, it's six o'clock in the morning. I think that, uh, yeah, it comes back to, again, your purpose and your passion and what you dedicate yourself to. I often say to people, if you're in a job, no matter what job it is, if you've taken the job, what's going to be your legacy in that job? What's going to be your legacy to that company? What's going to be the legacy to your team, to management? Understanding that a job is not about going to work just to get a wage. A job is going there because it, it, it gives value to you and it gives value to others. One of the things in your book that I thought was interesting was confidence. And we were taught, and I was thinking, you know, to really put yourself out there and to talk to people and to interact with people. And I, I love, firstly, the way that you, if you're in meetings where people are talking to people, you don't ask the obvious questions. You don't say, hello, my name is Christian. This is what I'm doing. What do you do for a living? You always find different ways to frame questions. And also, I guess I was curious about introversion <coughs> versus, um, you know, people that are extroverted. You know, I love to sit down next to somebody who's quite extroverted when I'm in my net networking sessions because they say very little, but they say it well. Mm. Whereas often you can spend time with people that talk a lot, but perhaps don't say a lot. Uh, or have a lot of substance. I, so I'm interested in confidence and I'm interested in how you can strike up interesting conversations, whether you're confident or not confident with people, how to build that rapport. Yeah, yeah. And I, I'll start with the second one because it's one of my pet peeves around, um, you know, I'm an, a closet introvert where people assume I'm extremely extroverted, you know, I'm excited to give a speech or something and then afterwards I hide in the toilet because I need to replenish my energy and, and, and somehow do that. And, 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 and I think it's, it's um, sorry, I'm, I'm trying to re relocate the chair behind me who, who's been in, in my way for a while. Um, but so essentially it's, it's, it's really um, something that, that I've been very curious about in terms of that question of if you are in, like, in your essence an introverted person, how can you still have a lot of serendipity happen to you? And um, I'd, I'd love to tell you about an experiment where we can see both elements play a role and then kind of illustrate um, serendipity in that. Um, so there's this um, experiment they did with um, people who consider themselves to be very lucky versus very unlucky. And, you know, they picked one of each and they said, you know what, walk down the street, go into a coffee shop, grab a coffee and sit down, and then we'll have our interview for, for the research project. Now, what they don't tell them is that there's hidden cameras along the street and inside the coffee shop. There's a ten, no, a five-pound note in front of the, the door. And inside the coffee shop, there's this one empty table next to this extremely successful businessman who can make big uh, dreams happen. And now the lucky person walks down the street, sees the five-pound note, picks it up, goes inside the shop, orders the coffee, sits next to the businessman, has a nice conversation, they exchange business cards, potentially an opportunity coming out of it. We don't know that, but um, might be. Now, the unlucky person walks down the street, 
doesn't see the five pound note, steps over it, goes inside the shop, orders the coffee, sits next to the businessman, ignores the businessman, and that's that. At the end of the day, they ask both people, so how was your day today? And so the lucky person says, it was amazing. I found money in the streets. I made a new friend and, you know, potentially an opportunity coming out. Now, the unlucky person just says, well, nothing really happened. And, you know, to me, that's a big example of that, 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 that idea of how we frame the world. Do we expect something to happen? Do we expect that if we walk down the street and we see something in a window, that that might lead us to our next podcast idea? Right. I've, I've had people who told me, look, Christian, I went into an old bookstore. I saw a title of a book and I was like, why don't people talk about this anymore? I should do a podcast about this. Right. And that's really kind of where introverts flourish. Right. That you can connect the dots uh, from calm sources, from silent sources, from those sources that don't speak, like from those sources that essentially are just there. Um, but then also, as we saw in this example, so let's say the, the five pound note. All of us can see that, right? If we if we open our eyes to the unexpected, we can see the unexpected happens all the time. But then, of course, the extrovert has a bit of an advantage when it comes to that conversation and that idea that, of course, you know, if if you converse with a lot of people, there's there's a lot more potentiality in those conversations. But I've always been a big fan of of two things. One, how do we see serendipity in calm sources, in quiet sources, and then B, how can we leverage extroverts? To essentially create serendipity for us. So, for example, um, I, you know, I've been working with a company where they sell insurances, uh, insurance products. And so, when they go into school, they first talk with the principal. And when they talk with the principal, who's usually the kind of extrovert type person who then walks to everyone and tells everyone, if you get that person excited, they tell, they spread the word for you. And so the idea here is that at a party or wherever we are, if we talk with the extrovert host first who then shares our ideas with everyone, we don't necessarily have to share the idea ourselves. And so it's really kind of leveraging extroverts to spread our message in some way. On the other side, then, the uh, just to your to confidence point also, I think that's a big one because I think it's something where I found that interesting in the sense that I think one of the biggest problems in the world is that, you know, those people who are overly confident a lot of times are not necessarily the ones who, you know, um, necessarily know the most or or deserve to uh, to to be that confident um and then the kind of wisest or 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 uh, the most questioning people a lot of times have have a lack of that self-confidence even though they should be the ones talking the most right and so um i've a lot of my focus has been on how do we get people to overcome these kind of deeper seated fears around you know rejection um not being worthy and, and, and I think that's one of the most brutal feelings, right? When you are in a meeting and you, you kind of have this idea where you're like, oh, my God, like, this is interesting. But then you hold it back, right? You self-censor yourself because you don't feel um, ready or, or something else. And so it's kind of um, – there, there's a lot about this confidence building. I'm a big fan of, of learning how to, you know, literally sending a lot of emails to people and learning how to get rejections just to then, in a way, um, get more into that idea that rejections are normal and, and okay. And build resilience. Mm -hmm. And probably if you care about it deeply enough, will give you the temerity to back yourself to make it happen despite those rejections. One of the things that I loved uh, when I read your book was the story about uh, authenticity. You need to, and this will be my last question, I promise. I could talk to you all day long. Um, authenticity in being true to who you are. And I think you had the story of somebody's sister who worked in sales um, who had her own little entrepreneurial piece happening on the side. She had three children. 
Um, and literally, you know, if it suited her purpose, even if she had to go to a business meeting or whatever, she'd have the three children with her. So she had this busy, busy life. And yet, you know, she was so true to herself that she, sorry, sorry, I had to bring the children. No, there was no apologies. These are my children. I am a mother. This is what I do. And she would get on with her life. I found that very, very powerful, I have to tell you. Tell me a little bit about the importance of authenticity. You know, it's interesting because the reason, so I love that example too, because um, so so that that lady, she is a rock star in, in you know, uh, in terms of being, uh, you know, truthful to herself and, and also then in a way that's a beautiful filter, right? Which kind of, like, who do you want to work with? Do you want to work with people who actually respect that kind of authenticity? And I think, um, again, we don't always have the luxury of, of doing that. And I think that's a general caveat that I think there's always... Um, you know, there's there's a lot of constraints we all have in terms of how our base levels of serendipity might be different in terms of how much control we have our time or over our contacts or other things. But I think in general, in her case, um, you know, that idea that she can work at the same time as having like her life right there um, in a way that 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 is reinforcing because it's it's kind of she works with the kind of people who also respect that and who, who, who do that. And I think, you know, in our Zoom world nowadays, where we are taking the private plane into everyone's living room, it is obviously something that's really interesting, right? How can we build that kind of connection um, with people who, who are uh, essentially in their living room and we enter their living room and, and, and can potentially build that? Um, I've always been an interesting, um, or I've always found it interesting um, how we can, in organizations especially, create a culture for this, because I think, a lot of times, you know, people talk about values and they talk about, oh, great, we are creating a culture of authenticity in XYZ. But then you go, you know, to work on Monday morning and you don't really feel it. And so there's this um, a wonderful woman, Barry, um, who uh, she ran uh, Ketchum, uh, which is a, a large uh, PR company. And, uh, you know, she would leave loudly, for example. You know, she would be the kind of person who would say, you know what, I'm the CEO. And at four o'clock, there's a volleyball game that my daughter has, and that is non-negotiable. It's here in the diary, and I'm leaving, and when I'm leaving, I'm telling everyone on the way out that I'm leaving because part of our values is work-life balance, and, and work-life balance is at the core of what we're doing, and everyone should be, have the right to this. And so she kind of coined all these things around leaving loudly, so this idea that you really kind of, in a way, as a leader, showcase those values. And what's fascinating is, you know, they did a lot of work around work-life integration and so on, but by role modeling those kind of authentic values and by, in a way, showing, hey, it's okay to do that as long as you still get your work done, right? As long as you then afterwards, after the game, you're back on your desk or you're back in your home office, then it's fine. And I think that's kind of, when we think about authenticity, um, I think a lot of times, you know, each of us would like a longing for it, but then a lot of times we're not allowed to do it. And so I think one of the key leadership functions is to say, hey, look, I can role model if we have a value here, this is how we translate into being really genuine. And the only way to do it is to show by example. Like what is it that really, how, how, how that plays out? Christian, we are going to have to wrap up. I have loved talking to you. I have enjoyed reading your book, The Serendipity Mindset. Is there any final comments from you to our job seekers and advancing professionals out there in terms of how they might cultivate their luck for their advantage and for the advantage of those around them? 
Absolutely. I mean, you know, I, I, I wouldn't be able to leave without um, a philosophical note. I mean, I grew up in Heidelberg where Goethe and Schiller wrote their poems on a philosopher's way. And um, one of the things that, that Goethe inspired in Viktor Frankl, who was this amazing psychotherapist um, who survived the Holocaust and always kind of tried to figure out, you know, what is human psyche about, um, is this beautiful thought that at the end of the day, we cannot always control the situation we're in. We cannot control that COVID happens, that all the jobs that were lined up don't work out, but we can always control our reaction to it. We always have some kind of agency, some kind of control in some way. And that agency defines our freedom, our serendipity, the way we can live our life. And I think that's really something I've learned a lot from, from survivors and from people who you know, face death, from people who had near-death experiences, that if you let yourself define to be defined by the, by the situation, there's not much you can do. But if you say, I will use that situation to define something else and to define myself differently, then actually you gain a lot of power. And I found that always very fascinating how you then actually can use that as an inflection point to really create beautiful things in life. And, you know, if you look at all the people we just talked about, a lot of them, you know, a lot of their quote unquote longer term luck came out of hardships, out of really tough situations. In my life, it would come out of things like breakups. It would come out of things, you know, like things we would usually consider as, as not so nice. But actually those kind of things, it always reminds me of this idea that, you know, if you want a happy ending, it depends on when you stop the story. And I think that's really something where that tenacity and that idea that, hey, look, there's always something we can still reframe, even if it's a tough situation, is beautiful. And so um, to give you a tangible example, um, you know, an acquaintance of mine who who got cancer, he was in politics. And, you know, when he got cancer, he knew, okay, I will die soon. And I will cope with with the cancer as I always cope with politics. I will make a campaign against the cancer. And so he essentially shaped the whole awareness campaign around cancer and how you can, you know, do X, Y, Z things. And when he was on his deathbed, he would say, look, this was the most meaningful thing I've, I've done in my life. And, and that's really the kind of thing where it was the toughest, you know, moment you can have, right? I can, I can imagine nothing more severe than knowing that you will die for sure in a few months or years. But actually then kind of reframing this and saying, you know what? I will still do something with this to make that meaningful. That really, I think, is, is the power we all have, no matter which situation we're in. And so I think, um, especially in, in, in the situation we're in at the moment, like keeping this idea of, yes, there are a lot of things we can't control, but there are always things we can control. And what can we do with that? I think that's at the core of, of that serendipity mindset. For me, the big take out of your book, and there were many, but I thought if you put, if you run away from unexpected situations, you're limiting yourself because the more interactions you have, the more encounters you have, the more events, in whatever way, shape, or form, information is coming to you. And I think you coined the phrase, it wasn't that information was powerful, but it's at the core of everything we do. And when we have the information, we have the ability to assimilate that and we have the ability to action it. And once you have that, you have serendipity really in your hands. And um, Christian, I want to say thank you very much. I have loved our conversation today. I think there's a lot for people to take on. And um, please stay on the line. I'm going to finish up our show now. To everybody who's tuned in today, thank you very much. Um, we're back again next Tuesday, Brisbane time at uh, 12 noon um, with another special guest, um, Dr. Christian Bush. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you so much.
Have a good night, everyone. Thank you.